If you look at Abraham Lincoln, like if you, if you read Abraham Lincoln's story apart from history, if we just tell you here's a guy who was born in Kentucky, moved to Illinois, ran for House of Representatives, eventually ended up President of the United States, he would be one of just a number of presidents in the history of the United States. Oh, it's cool he's president. But what makes Abraham Lincoln's presidency so significant? So significant. What is it? That he was president during the Civil War, and ultimately that's where slavery officially ended, right? That's, that's what, if you don't know what was going on at the time of Abraham Lincoln, then his story is not nearly as compelling. Does that make sense? you got to know what was going on at the time. And this is what we do in the Bible. We read these character stories of true people who existed in history and what they did at a time in history but most of the people in our churches throughout the world don't know what was going on historically at the time, so it doesn't mean nearly as much to us as what it would if we knew the history of the events surrounding the life of that individual in the Bible. Make sense? And so that's why I take time doing the background every week. This week, I, I spent a lot of reading. I told my wife, I, I did a lot of background historical reading, refreshing my mind from my seminary days, from what was going on in the kingdom of Egypt at the time that Moses was born. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back in history a little bit for you, and for you to get the main points that are going to be life-changing today, okay? You've got to understand the historical foundation that I'm going to be laying for the first two-thirds of this sermon. Okay, uh, so let's go back. We're going to go back to 1800-something B.C., okay, from Abraham to Moses. You had the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham is called out of the region of Ur around Kuwait today to go up to the promised land. And this is the promise that God makes to Abraham uh, back in 1846-ish, okay, 1846. It says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. So we, we talked about that earlier, about the sands on the seashore and how many descendants he would have. Then Abram fell on his face and God said, behold, my covenant is with you. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings will come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to, God, to be God to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Now watch this, important verse today. We haven't talked about this yet. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Okay, so this is an everlasting promise made to Abraham and his descendants that they all the land that he has sojourned through from the time that he was called out of the region of Ur till the time that they're called down to Egypt, all of that land where they're just wandering, searching for a home, he promises, that's why it's called the promised land, that he will give that land to them. All right, what does that look like? Okay, in the yellow here, if you can see on the screen, is the land of Abraham's sojourning. 
from the Euphrates, the Tigris and the Euphrates out here. This is the region where he came. This is Israel. A lot of times when we think of the promised land, we think about that little sliver right there. Do y'all see what I'm saying? Listen, the promised land is everything that's in yellow. It's described and it's laid out in the Bible. Everything in this whole section, all the way over to the Nile River, down to Ethiopia, all of this is promised to Abraham and his descendants. Not some just little 70 by 100 slot of land. Okay? So this is the land that has been promised to him, and his descendants are going to be as numerous as the sands on the seashore. And here we see a promise that God is making to him in Genesis 15. The sun was going down, Abraham falls asleep, and a great darkness falls upon him. And then the Lord says to Abram, know for certain that your, your offspring will be soldiers in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possession. So God tells him in 1846, let me, let me give you the date here. In 1846, the clock begins. 400 years you're going to be wandering. 400 years you're not going to have a home. 400 years you're going to be persecuted by the peoples around you. But eventually I'm going to bring you back into the promised land in 400 years this target date, 1446 B.C. Now, I want you to write that down. If you take notes, write that down. I want you to remember that date in your mind, 1446 B.C. That is when God promises to take them out of that land, to have made them a prosperous nation, and to go into that region that we called the promised land. Okay? Now, you know the story. We've gone over this before. Abraham's great-grandson, Joseph, goes down to Egypt he sold into slavery there. Eventually, he becomes the second most powerful man in Egypt. Uh, he saves the whole world because of a dream he interpreted. Eventually, the whole family winds up back down there with him because he's the rich guy, can take care of the whole family. When they move down there, watch this. Between Abram, okay, and when they all move down there with Joseph, he has 70 to 75 descendants over a course of 190 years. Now, listen. People don't prosper in an area where they're moving around all the time. Nation, or people don't explode in population when they don't have enough food, when they don't have enough water. That, that's not the situation for human flourishing. So for the first 190 years while they're wandering around of this 400-year prophecy, there's only 70 to 75 descendants that have come from Abram. And someone could have looked at God's promise 190 years in and said, man, where are all the sands on the seashore that you promised? Where's all this prosperity that you said was going to come this way? What, how come we don't have our own? It, I don't see how in another 200 years. If this is what it's going to look like for another 210 years. We're never going to inherit all this land. We're never going to be a prosperous nation. How's this ever going to happen? But then something happens. Because of the famine and going down to where uh, Joseph was, they get to live in prime Goshen, Egypt land down by the Nile River. And so they've got food, they've got shelter, they've got clothing. They're in a prosperous area. So over the course of the next 130 years, the population goes from, one, from 70 to 75 to 1.2 million people. Now that's a population explosion, right? It's very similar to what happened here in the United States after the Civil War 
up until about 1930, 1940. Now, you, you say, how can a population explode that much in that amount of time, okay, in just 130 years? What happened in the United States? We saw it. Let me, let me just ask you a question. How many of you come from a family where you have seven or more kids? Raise your hand. Okay? I see one hand. That, the Atkins, you, you're the head of a family, all right? You don't come from a family. All right, just a couple of hands in the whole place. Now I'm going to ask you another question. How many of you, your great-grandmother came from a family of seven or more kids? Raise your hand. Look at all. Now just stop. Look around. Look at what changed. You see? And now you can put them down. I want you to see it. That is like 80% of our congregation came from a time in America when women had seven or more kids. And when women are having seven or more kids, you can go from 70, 75 people to 1.2 million in 130 years. That's what we saw here in the United States. So we're living in a land of plenty here in the United States. They were living in a land of plenty there. And as the population just explodes, that's what leads the Egyptians to say, oh my goodness, the Hebrews are taking over. Look at them, they're having seven kids each. The Egyptians were affluent. And affluent people want to retain their affluence. They want to retain their money. Now watch this. What do rich people do when they want to get richer? What do they do when rich people want to get richer? What do they do as far as quote-unquote family planning goes? They want their kids to have more than they had. So the best way to increase the pie is to do what? Divide the pie into less people. Have left less kids. We used to scramble, people think. When we had eight kids, we were all scrambling for one. But if we only had two kids, then the two kids I have would get a whole lot more pie. Do you understand that? And so when money is the driving factor behind your decisions, then you will have less kids all the time as a society. And so the Egyptians wanted to have more money for them and their kids. They didn't want to have more mouths to feed, focused on money. They had less kids. The Hebrews were having seven to eight children per family. All of a sudden, you can see how just in a few years, whoop, the Egyptian population went down and the Hebrew population went up. And this sends people into panic mode. What are we going to do? Well, this is what we better do. We better start aborting the minorities or else they will start becoming the majority. We talked about that a few weeks ago, how we saw the early founders of Planned Parenthood. That was their goal. We better start aborting the minority poor so the majority can stay in control of that, okay? That's what led to the mass genocide of Hebrew boys in 1526 B.C., okay? Now, at that same time, who do we know was born from the biblical account? Well, Moses was born, okay? Everybody follow so far? It's history, but you got to hang on to this to understand. Now, Moses is a part of this baby boom, and look what Stephen says. Now, i got to explain this to you so you understand where I get some of these things. Stephen, speaking by the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 7, okay, he is telling the Jews about their history. He starts quoting stuff in Acts chapter 7 that is not in the Pentateuch. It's not in the Jewish Bible. He starts quoting historical sources in the same way that we would quote American history books talking about Abraham Lincoln or George Washington, John Adams, those guys, okay? Now, what does that tell us? 
is that Stephen, as he is speaking by the Holy Spirit, understood these extra-biblical historical sources to be true accounts of what happened at the time of Moses, at the time of Abraham, okay? So the Jewish people had historical records over and above the Bible. We don't put them on the same level as the Bible, but when we see Jesus referring to the, them, when we see the early apostles referring to them as accurate, then if Jesus thought it was accurate, if Stephen speaking by the Holy Spirit thought these extra-biblical historical records were accurate, then we can probably assume those historical records were probably pretty accurate as well. Okay? So Moses is born. This is what Stephen says 14, 1,500 years after Jesus was born. He says, at this time, this is after Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, I mean, they set him out. You know, it had been three months, and we can't hide him any longer. Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Now, this is a significant verse because we don't see this particularly in the Hebrew Scriptures. It's in extra-biblical sources. But Stephen says it by the Holy Spirit, therefore we know it's true. Now, this is what, I want, this is what we learn from the Bible and what Stephen learned from historical cir circumstances. Moses wasn't raised like the stepchild that nobody loved. Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Now that phrase is very important. There in, in Alexandria at the time of Moses and from the time of Moses all the way up into the dark ages, we're talking for two to 3,000 years, Alexandria was the capital of thought in the entire world. It was the number one school system in the world. The wisdom of the Egyptians was a phrase they had back then, like saying all the wisdom of the Ivy League schools, except the Ivy League schools aren't the top schools in the entire world. They are just technically in our country, or so they say, all right? The reason I'm, I'm sharing this is they, Stephen wants you to know something about Moses. He had the absolute best education that he could have then, and because of that education, because the way he's risen, that he was raised up, extra-biblical sources tell us, historical sources that Stephen's quoting from here, says that Moses was the best and brightest of his class. The Pharaoh recognized how smart he was. Moses' mother obviously saw how smart he was. He had an aptitude for learning and for leadership. He, the, the Pharaoh at that time was Thutmose, it's not King Tut, all right? Thutmose I, and his daughter's name was, I'm going to look at this, Thermuthus. Neither one of them had a male heir. So here you have the Pharaoh who doesn't have a male heir, but he's got a daughter, Thermosis. And Thermosis doesn't have a male heir either. So that's what Pharaoh was hoping, is if I can't have a male heir, then maybe my daughter can have a male heir, and I'll pass it straight down to my grandson, the, the kingdom of Egypt. When she doesn't have a male heir, now they're in trouble. What are we going to do? Who's going to take over? And when this would happen in the ancient world, now watch this. This is where you've got to stay engaged so you can get this. What happened in the ancient world, if the king didn't have a male heir, then a lot of times there would be an uprising and another rich and powerful family would take over that kingdom. And so Thermosus, 
the daughter is having a conversation with her dad is, here's the thing, our family's going to lose the kingdom if you don't take Moses to be your son. Now, I'm going to just ask you a question. What do you think the traditionalists in Egypt thought about an adopted Hebrew baby becoming the king of Egypt forever and ever? And the answer to that is what? They're not going to like it. But Pharaoh is the most powerful man in the world, and he realizes if he dies without an heir, his entire family will be wiped out because that's what happened back then. You kill a king, you kill his entire family. When he goes away, then you have a new kingdom, right? So he realizes. So the talk is he's going to appoint Moses. But there's this battle between the, the rich and powerful and Pharaoh, and this argument's going on because he doesn't have a male heir. Moses grows up in the home. They're like, we're worried that he will lead the Hebrews to be against us. Thermuthus made this argument. This is from extra-biblical sources, I know, but we think they're pretty accurate. It's like we know anything else from history, okay? Thermuthus argued that because the Hebrew population was still growing so much, that Moses could marry an Egyptian woman, watch this, and thereby unite the two peoples and they become an even more powerful nation in the world. Now, you could see why Moses' mom would make that argument, right? The mother always wants her boy to be the next king. So she's arguing the two of them can come together, but the traditionalists are opposed to this idea, okay? Now, I'm going to fast forward to the, to the 1480s, okay? This is what happens. 1480s, Moses is in his mid-30s. Now, now's when it starts getting good. There's no male heir. Thermuthus still hasn't had a son. There's no male heir to the king. This is what happens. In southern Egypt, the Ethiopians attack, and they defeat and take a number of southern Egyptian cities. They defeat the Egyptian army in the south. And so they've got this problem. Is the Egyptian army was kind of weaker at the time. What are we going to do? And so Thermuthus goes to her daddy and says, we're in big trouble here, and you're getting old. This, she sees a shot for her son. The army just got defeated. Why don't you call Moses in to be the general of the Egyptian armies, and he will take a bunch, the Hebrews will follow him, the Egyptian army will go with him, send him into southern Egypt, and there he can prove whether or not he is worthy to become the king of Egypt someday. Now, if you're part of the rich group and you hear that, this is a win-win situation because the Ethiopian army is going to take over. Why is it a win-win situation for you if you send Moses down there as the general? If he wins, then what? You get to keep your country and you get your cities back, right? If he loses, then what? No more talk about any more Moses being the leader of our nation. This is a win-win for you. So we're going to send Moses down there. So Moses leads the Egyptian armies down there, and guess what he does? He wins. They defeat the Ethiopian army. It's just a rout. He takes Hebrew soldiers with him and the Egyptian soldiers, and they just wipe them clean. All right? Moses comes back into Egypt, riding the chariot, and all the Hebrews are going crazy. Hey, we've got representation. We're going to be okay. You would think that would be the reaction, right? So he's rolling in, but the Egyptians are watching him, and they're saying, we still don't want this guy. I mean, how many of you know it doesn't matter what a minority does, when there's racism towards that minority, it doesn't matter what they do to prove themselves, it's never going to be good enough for the rich and powerful. Do you understand that? Things haven't changed, 
have they? There's nothing he's going to do to be good enough. So Moses rolls back in, and they don't want him. Now watch what happens next, okay? He's out looking at a project someday where the slaves are and the Egyptian taskmasters are ruling there. And Moses has got to be dealing with something. He sees, no matter what I do, the Egyptians are never going to receive me. The Egyptians are never going to accept me as their king. That much is true. I just won the biggest battle for them in my lifetime, and they're not accepting me, and they're never going to accept me. And so he has to be thinking at the same time. I mean, think about it this way. As Moses grows up, don't you know he had to have a little bit of survivor's guilt? I mean, if they would have asked, okay, let's have all the Hebrew boys who graduated from the class of 1508, please stand up. Who's standing up out of a million people? Only Moses, right? He's the only one who's graduating class. Why? Because they killed all the other boys that year. And, it, and from the time he was young, his Hebrew mother told him he was special. And from the time he was young, his adoptive mother told him that he was special. And he's like, man, I know I was born for a reason. I know I was spared for a purpose. What purpose is it, God? Because the Egyptians just won't accept me. And then it I'm speculating a little bit here, but I'm just saying this is the way I think a human being would normally think in his position. He had to be thinking, if the Egyptians are never going to accept me, then I'm going to try to go with the people who will. I'm going to go with my own biological people. Okay? But he runs into a problem. And it's going to explain this in Scripture so we know for 100% sure it's true. Have you ever known an African-American who is adopted by white parents? I've known a few. This black guy is raised white. He talks white. He dresses white. He's like the guy on Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. What, what's his name? Does the dance. What's his name? Carlton, right. You know what I mean? Now, when Carlton was around the other black guys, they didn't accept him because he looked white, acted white, rolled white. You, you see what I'm saying? And so that's the thing, is that Carlton was never white enough for the whites. He was never black enough for the blacks. Can I talk about racism in church? It's such a sensitive topic. It's like you're always worried, like people are going to, ah! Is it reality or not? And so this is the problem. Moses wasn't Egyptian enough for the Egyptians, but because he was raised in it as an Egyptian, then how are the Hebrew people going to treat him? You're really not one of us. You're not Jewish enough for us. This is what happens. One day when Moses had grown up, this is after the Egyptian war, he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of, look at how his identity, look at Moses' identity here, one of his people. These Egyptians, they're not my people. You ever do that? You, you get around people like, man, them's my people. There's certain people that way. My wife's like that. When she sees a sticker on the back of a, a car that says 13.1 trail run, you know, has these big numbers on it for these people that run a long way, she looks at it and she says, them's my people, okay? I see those stickers and I think they ain't my people, okay? I can't do that, okay? This is what Moses looks at. He says, one of his people. He's identifying now with the Jewish people. By the time he's 40, he realized, man, I'm not one of the Egyptians. I'm never going to be one of the Egyptians. I need to quit trying. I need to lead. I was born to lead. What am I going to do? 
So he looks this way and that. He takes matters into his own hands. And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and he hit him in the sand. Now watch this. If the Egyptians find out that he has chosen the Hebrew people over the Egyptians, what's going to happen next? They're going to completely turn. And now Pharaoh realizes, hey, now that he's done this, when Pharaoh finds out about this, he's like, hey, Moses, you might have had a shot before that now that you've done this, now that you've shown where your allegiances lie, I can't help you. Stephen tells it this way in the book of Acts. He says, when Moses was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, then the identity, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Watch what happens next. He supposed that his Jewish brothers, that's who he's talking about, the brothers here, would understand that God was giving them salvation by Moses' hand But they didn't understand. Here comes the general of the Egyptian armies. He comes in and he strikes the guy, knocks him down. And what is Moses thinking? He's thinking the Jews will see what he's done and said, this is our deliverer. This is our guy. We like him. But the Jewish reaction is what? You're too Egyptian for us. What do you know about our suffering? You were raised as a prince of Egypt. Let's get on down the road. We don't want you. We don't like you. You're not one of us. Now, when Moses was, watch this. This word's going to start to come together for you. When Moses was 40 years old, what year was it? It was 1486 B.C. But God's target date all along for delivering the Hebrew people, the promise was what? It would be 1486. 46. He's got 40 years to go, but Moses is thinking, man, I've seen my people suffer long enough. I'm 40 years old. I've got the education I need to lead a a mass of people. I've got the military leadership skills. I'm a big deal now. I'm 40 years old. It's time for me to get on. I should be at the top of my profession by now. So he's going to take matters into his own hands. He's got the talent, he's got the know-how, and he's thinking, man, if I don't strike now, then when will I? When am I going to be more popular than when I just led our people against the Ethiopians? So he rises up thinking they're going to rally with him, but they don't. Why? Listen, because he's 40 years too soon. So this is what Moses does, verse 13. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And they sa- he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He's trying to build leadership here and rally the troops. And the guy answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? If you turned on the people that raised you, how do we know you're not going to turn on us? Man, you know what? You're all about Moses and only about Moses. You don't care about us. You don't care about the Egyptians. You only care about yourself. Then Moses was afraid, and he thought, surely this thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh, and he stayed in the land of Midian. 
and he sat down by a well. Out in the middle of a desert, sitting next to a water well. I want you to get that picture. There he is, this 40-year-old guy. He's got everything going for him, good looking. I mean, they said he was a handsome man, the smartest guy in the land, sitting by a well. He's lost everything. God, I thought I knew your will for my life when I went down there and beat the Ethiopians, but the Egyptians didn't accept me. Then I thought I knew your will for my life, but the Hebrews didn't accept me. My life is over. He's sitting by a well. 1846, that clock begins. The target date's 1446, but now Moses at 40 years old. It's 1486. He's 40 years off. But he doesn't know it. So what's the problem? Now I'm going to give you, now everything that I've said, I'm going to give you some hard-hitting applications. But I had to spend literally 30 minutes to get you to these last 10 to 15. This is what I want you to understand. If you don't know the historical settings, you're not going to quite get this. Watch. Principle number one, I want every one of you in this room to take these principles home today. I can't tell you how important these are. Number one, just realize this. Our timing and God's timing are usually not the same. Just remember that. No matter where you are in life, our timing and God's timing are usually not the same. Now watch. I'm, I'm going to go where angels fear to tread, and I'm going to talk about something that men just don't talk about very often. Because I think it's going to be obvious. I'm going to talk about how this is true in Moses' life, but I'm going to back it up 40 years before this date to someone else's life. Her name was Thermuthis. That was Moses' adoptive mother. Don't miss this. What got her attention when she was bathing in the Nile? Why did her heart break for baby Moses? What did she hear? She heard him crying, and her heart broke for him. Now watch this. She opens up the basket. She sees it's a baby boy. I got a very important question to ask you right now. If she would have had an Egyptian son of her own at that time, a biological Egyptian son, what do you think would have happened to Moses in that moment that he was discovered by Pharaoh's daughter? Do you think that she would have said, oh my goodness, this is an answer to my prayers. Here's a baby boy for me to raise. Or would she have said, this is one of them Hebrew babies. My father made a rule about these babies. He needs to be thrown to the crocodiles. Which do you think it would have been? Don't miss what I'm about to say next. Listen. Is God sovereign over all things? The answer to that is what? Yes. Was God sovereign over Pharaoh's daughter not being able to have a child of her own? Yes. Even so much so, God knew someday she'd be standing in that water when that baby boy came floating by. How many nights did Pharaoh's daughter, how many nights did Pharaoh pray for his daughter to have a child, to have a son? How many times did she pray night after night, give me a child, give me a child, give me a child, give me a child, and month after month after month, no, 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 no. Why not? 
Because someday God's going to send a little boy by you and he's going to break your heart. But the only way your heart's going to be broken for that little boy is if God breaks your heart year after year, month after month, cycle after cycle, until you're ready to bring that child into your own home. Our timing and God's timing are usually not the same. Secondly, for Moses, I think this one's pretty obvious. God decreed in 1846 that it would be 400 years. Moses was trying to do things before it was his time. You can't lead before God says it's time to lead. That leads to point number two. We cannot force God's hand by taking things into our own hands. We cannot force God's hands by taking things into our own hands. You didn't get the job that you wanted, don't try to take it into your own hands, wait for God's time. You didn't get the child that you wanted in God's time. You haven't found the spouse that you want in God's time. You didn't get the promotion that you wanted in God's time. No matter what it is that you're praying for that you don't have yet, whatever you do, don't try to take matters in your own hands to use unscrupulous ways to get there. Don't try to force it. Leave it to God in his time. Because listen, if it's not God's time, then what? It's not going to happen the way you want it to happen. You might even get what your hand forces, but then once you get it, what are you going to say? Man, I should have listened to God. I can't tell you how many women have sat in my office, how many men have sat in my office and told me, man, I wish I wouldn't have married who I married. I, everybody was telling me, I don't need to marry this person. Everybody was telling me they're not walking with the Lord. But man, I just felt like I had to get married. So then you marry him, and now you're in my office, and you're saying, can I get out of this? And you know what I'm going to tell you? No. Just because you made one mistake, don't double down on it by disobeying God again, because now you're trying to force God's hand by getting out of the situation where you try to force God's hand in the first place. And isn't that what we do? We try to force God's hand. We get into a situation where we shouldn't. Then we say, well, I'm going to take things into my own hands again. And then you take things in your own hands again, you make it worse. And then you take it in your own hands and you make it worse. It gets worse and worse. And finally you cry out on the mercy of God and he fixes it. We cannot force God's hands by taking things into our own hands. Point number three. When you're stuck in a desert, just sit down and wait. Just sit down. Now, I got to tell you, I think men are worse at this than women. Men just got to be doing something. I got to fix this. Finally, God knocked Moses down in the middle of the desert, sat down, shut him up. But listen, when you finally sit down, you say, I'm done. I can't do anything else. That's when God, listen, when you finally sit down, say, okay, it's out of my hands. I can't fix this. Moses blew it with the Egyptians. He blew it with the Hebrews. He's sitting out in the middle of the desert. He's 40 years old thinking his life is over. And God says, now is when I can actually use you. 
Now, this is what happens while he's sitting by the well. Watch this. God's going to give him another opportunity. This is beautiful. This is the mercy of God. This is how God does things in his time. Now, the priest of Midian had seven daughters. It's a guy who lived in the desert area. And they came, and they drew water, and they filled troughs uh, to water their father's flock. Now, the shepherds came and drove the daughters away. But Moses, watch this. But Moses stood up and saved them, and he watered their flock. Now, this tells you something about Moses. This is, we're going to see this later on. Moses is sitting there by the well. you got these, let's say, five or ten guys over here. He's sitting there. He sees them taking advantage of these seven girls. What would most guys in that position do when he sees this crime going on? What are they going to say? That's none of my business. I don't want to get out. I'm out here in a minute. I don't want to get out here and get in a fight with five guys over seven women I don't know. But there was something in Moses' heart. There was still this aspect of his character that when he saw an injustice, he wanted to bring justice to that situation. And not because he wanted to be the king of Egypt, not because he wanted to be the Hebrews, but just for no benefit of his own, finally Moses does something that is not in his own self-interest, but only because it's the right thing to do. He stands up, and because of the training he's had, being in the Egyptian army, what does he do? He whips those guys. I'm sure he didn't come up, oh, gentlemen, could you please step to the side? That's not the way it works. He had to grab some kind of weapon and whip them all. They go sinning, and at this time, the seven girls are all, be still my heart, look at this man. <laughs> so they go home, and they're all, woo we got our water flock, that good-looking member, he's the most handsome man in the land, and he's smart. And they go back home, and there's their daddy. And they, they come home to their father very well, and he said, how is it that you've come home so soon today? How are you already done? They said, well, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. Now watch the dad's reaction. What, are you stupid? Why didn't you bring this guy home with you? None of you are married. There's no men out here in the middle of the desert. He says, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may come and eat bread. And Moses was content. Whoo. Look at this word. Moses was, for the first time in his life, we see that he is what? Content. He's not striving to be the king of Egypt. He's not striving anymore to be the deliverer for the Hebrews. He's just content to dwell and he takes a wife, and she gave birth to a son. His name was Gershon. And he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Now, what's the key sentence here? What did Abraham promise that the people of Israel would be? Sojourners in a foreign land. And Moses names his son that. And this is what I want you to see. Listen, sometimes... God wants us to learn humility in the small things before he will give us, give us prominent success in the big things. God was, sent those shepherds there that day, I'm sure. And he says this, he, I'm just saying that something's going on in Moses' heart where God's giving him an opportunity, saying to him, let me see if you will just defend these seven girls 
right now. Let me see if you're willing to be content just leading your own household. Let me see if you're willing to be content and just shepherding some sheep. You don't have to be the big guy. You don't have to be the man right now, Moses. I know your whole life, everybody's raised you to be the man. Right now, I don't need you to be the man for the whole world. I just need you to be the man for your wife and your son. That's all I need right now from you. Say it again another way. God is saying to his heart, in your first 40 years, I got you the education you need to lead a nation. But now for the next 40 years, I'm going to mold in you the character you need to shepherd my people. And sometimes you've got to sit in a desert land for 40 years before you get it. This is how we do it. While we focus on building resumes, God focus, focuses on building character. And right now, whatever tough thing you're going through right now, understand this. God is molding your character. And he's got other things for you, but right now he just needs to say, will you be faithful in the small things before I can see if you'll be faithful in the big things? Now, while he's molding Moses in the desert, watch this. Remember the clock's still ticking. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. Year goes by, year goes by, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. The Hebrew people weren't ready for a leader yet either. But now they are. God heard their groaning. They've been humbled. They're calling out now for a deliverer. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, I love this, and God knew. And God knew. And this is a thought I want you to close with today. We're going to sing a song. If I could have our musicians come forward. God knows when you're sitting in a desert. But he's not going to do what he needs to do in your life until it's his time. But while you're waiting for God to show up and do something mighty in your life, just remember, he's not building your resume right now. What's he building? Your character. But character is built through tears. Tears.